with the changes in our climate, snow levels that used to be real good in the Northwest at 4,000 feet, not so good some months, but it's also changing to where sometimes now we get winter weather in April much more than we used to. So it's changing and I'm hearing that many more ski areas are getting this kind of condition where you're getting freezing rain, you're getting more rime than you maybe previously did and it's affecting lift operations in a variety of ways. Here comes part two of Reclaiming Palmer. Welcome back to the Mountain Works podcast, providing insider intel on how ski areas happen, created by and for ski area employees in the Northwest. I'm Jordan Elliott, and we're picking up our second run of this double feature Black Diamond episode, part one. And now this is part two of Reclaiming Palmer, which is a live educational session that occurred at the 2022 Mountain Works Conference in Bend, Oregon. Now, part one, which you might have just come off of listening to, was heavily Rose Phillips and the Timberline Mount Hood, Oregon crew talking about that 2020 icing event that knocked down the Palmer ski lift. But also part of that was Tom Scully from Safehold Special Risk and formerly spending about 30 years working on Mount Hood. Now, this was about an hour and a half long session, which the Mount Hood crew took the first part of, and now Tom is going to take the second part of. He's going to start to talk about weather a little bit more, start to talk about how some ski areas might be seeing these higher moisture and icing events than historically they have. Oh, and Tom is the safety guru guy. So he's going to infuse safety discussions about doing this properly the whole way through. Part of doing that during the session, he showed about an 11 minute video out of New Zealand. Let's see if I'm saying this right. Wakapapa, Wakapapa, ski area down in New Zealand that had a very similar icing event. And he was able to pull that video up from YouTube and really walk through it and get the whole the whole crowd kind of talking about safety concerns in what it takes to de-ice and reclaim ski lifts after they've been iced over. Hey, scroll on down to the show notes and you'll see the link to that video. So you can check that out yourself. Also in those show notes is Tom's slide deck. So you can listen here and you can click through, follow along on your own. Pretty useful. This was the last session of the big first day at that conference and Going into that evening was the trade show. And at the trade show, there's a lot of activity. People like to have drinks, get back together, especially after COVID. So at the end of this, uh, the room adjacent to where this presentation was happening was starting to get a little bit loud. You'll hear Tom's voice get a little bit elevated trying to speak over that. 
Uh, so he does sound definitely in command of the room the more this episode goes on. But alas, we were able to have a lapel mic on him the whole time. And I was able to edit out a bunch of that background noise. So this still sounds pretty good. Here it is. Part two of Reclaiming Palmer. I'll see you on the other side. Yeah, for those of you that don't know what goes into that, I, I can't say enough about the Timberline crew uh, and what they do every year up there. It is a freaking phenomenal job. Honestly, people from the rest of the country have no clue what goes on. And they, they've really been very modest about the work they've done. They've only scratched the surface of what was involved here. And it's not just in this job, but it's been going back for decades. They're just trying to ski up on Palmer. It's, it's a Herculean effort, a and it's a detachable that has a midway station. They didn't even mention that, that there's a ro there's the rope has to come out of a midway station on a detachable and then get put back in there every year and then get put to bed every year. So there's that pressure of running the ski area down below, down at the normal elevations with a lift up, up above that's trying to destroy itself. And the crew has to kind of deal with that. And it literally is so hard that one of the hardest men in the industry was moved to, he moved to New Mexico because of it. <laughs> Augie, Augie was there for decades and um, knows all about it. There's not very many people that have done this kind of work. And so it's, it's pretty unique. And we're, we're gonna talk more about it, but I just wanted to kind of mention that about just how um, amazing it is. And, and the fact that you got it going that year, I mean, it's just, it's incredible. And I just, it's ha hands off. And I, for no, anybody that doesn't know me, I worked at the Scary next to these guys at Meadows for about 30 years. And we had our own challenges as well. Um, I've, seen, I've seen the ice this big myself. In fact, the, the day that Palmer fell down we had a, about a 12-hour window where we went up and we de-iced Cascade just in time to get it before it was going to fall down. And then next door, these guys had that emergency where it fell down. And I got to go see it up close. So it, it, it's, it's absolutely phenomenal. Most people would have said, screw it, we're done. We're never putting that lift back up there. And they did, twice. And, and actually, it's now three times. So I just it's an amazing, amazing accomplishment. So I just wanted to, one of the things we want to talk about here is just a little bit about safety, um, because some of you might run into this stuff. And so it's by no, I, I got to say, it's, I've had a lot of luck in my life to still be here and have all my fingers. Same with, same with Augie. I'm sure anybody that's been through this stuff, you know, this is, this is a real life situation. And I don't say that lightly, but there's some things you can learn from this video and from stuff, that, the work that's been done at Timberline and Meadows and Bachelor um, and New Zealand. There's not very many other places in the world that get this weather other than Oregon, Washington, New Zealand, a few places in Canada, but it's very unique. So uh, the island of New Zealand has a lot of similar volcanoes that, that we have in the Cascades. And so they get very similar weather coming off the ocean. I wanted to stop it just to bring up some of the things that I observe that I try to share with people to try to either avoid or, or think about when you're doing this kind of work. So one of the things um, that these guys are working with is a little four-wheeler here, right? So it's a pretty sure it's a Doppelmeyer, um, and it's just a little four-wheeler. And so the, the, the height between the lifting frame where he's holding on here 
and here is, is it's, it's a pretty good distance, short little assembly. So these assemblies are going to rotate, right? The older styles didn't have, they didn't have like a bolt. So like Skytrack, um, I think Doppelmayr has that now. They have a, some kind of anti-rotation device. And that didn't come along until later on a lot of machines. So a lot of these don't have anti-rotation. So this thing, when it de-ropes and you're on it, it's going all the way around. And for anybody that's seen uh, an assembly do this in action, this happens really fast to where you can't, you don't have time to get out of the way. Um, so that's a lot of what they're talking about. So, and I'm gonna mention this a few, few more times as we go through this, but finding areas that are safe and not safe and knowing when to be in those places is really important in this line of work. Um, another thing that I just wanna point out is that when you are working on tower work, and, and I grew up, I started lift maintenance in 87, 88, and we didn't have harnesses back then. I'm sure you grew up in we those had the, days. The hip belt. Back, back breakers, right? Yep. So I go way back. I did a lot of work without harnesses. I was very lucky sometimes, worked on a lot of machines like this without harnesses, without lifting frames, all, this, all that kind of stuff you can imagine. But now that we've got the gear, use it and you and try to use it properly. So one of the things that if he do, if he if he is in a situation here you want your fall protection. Now granted this is for demonstration only. Don't get me wrong, they're making a video here, but he's tied into his positioning spots on his harness. He's not tied into his fall protection. The only place for real fall protection is on your back. And that's the that's where the that's the spot where that all that equipment is designed to absorb the load if you take a fall. And these guys did take falls, and we've had plenty of people take falls. So, sorry, let's keep keep going. But that, in addition to the amount of slack, so if you are positioned in, you're supposed to not allow yourself to fall. And so he's got a lot of slack built into his system. So just keep that in mind. Lots of slack. And, and we also want to leave some time for Augie to talk about what's happened at uh, Sandia Tram this year. You want to, do you want to go right now or do you want to I go? I can. Okay. Um, so on New Year's, Sandia Peak Tram is a, a pretty big uh, installation down in Albuquerque, New Mexico. It's uh, the length of the lift is approximately 15,000 feet long. I have 19 miles of, hull, of uh, cable hanging in the air. Um, one of the cables is a rescue cable, which is an 18 millimeter cable that rides on top of all the track cables and the hull, the hull ropes. Um, it's kind of like a, a white elephant. It really doesn't do anything for us. We uh, induce voltages and frequencies into it to get telemetry and communication down the hill. Um, but during storm cycles, um, it can ice up. It doesn't ice up nearly as bad, but we have a span that's about 7,000 feet long and nothing supports it between the top and tower two. Um, we had a storm come in, operations didn't take it very seriously. Um, they were, had a time they were gonna shut down. To give you an idea, they missed that opportunity by eight minutes. That trip would have been done in eight minutes, but what happened, the, uh, the uh, rescue rope iced up from the approaching storm. It went down, the counterweight came up, the uh, 
in the middle of the trip, the uh, emergency rope uh, touched the track cables, which initiates a ground fault and it stops the installation. So while it stopped, it's still icing up, the wind starts blowing, blows the emergency cable over the track cables and then keeps icing up and goes down and it falls over or is draped over the, the uh, track cables. Anyways, uh, I get a call about 9.30 at night. I'm in bed. I go in and the hall cable and the, the hall cable and the E cable both have a ground fault, which means we can't move it. And I've got 22 employees up there stuck in the cabin. Uh, long story short, 18 hours later, we got them out of the cabin. It involved a helicopter. It involved moving the tram when I had a ground fault on the E-cable. I maneuvered the E-cable with the counterweight I had left uh, to get the ground fault off of the haul cable. So I thought I could move it relatively safely to get one cabin back to Tower 2, which had all the people in it. Um, they sat up there all night. Um, daybreak came. The storm cleared off by about noon. We did about uh, 12 helicopter trips to evac everybody out. It became national and worldwide news. Um, after the event, it took us about uh, five days to get everything sorted out with the, with the rescue rope. It became entangled with the slack carriers on the track ropes. Um, we tried lowering it and raising it several times. Uh, wind conditions didn't allow it to... Uh, uh, to help us, uh, we hired drone pilots to kind of guide us, and we waited for the uh, wind conditions to mellow out, and we were finally able to raise the rescue rope above the track ropes again. Um, one cabin had just one operator in it. It had its ballast plate on and a full tank of water. Normally, that counterweight stays at about, the track rope counterweight stays at about 14 feet when it's empty, uh, during that storm, it extended out to 42 and a half feet. Um, it was nearly going to go up into the into the superstructure. Our counterweight pit's about uh, 70 feet deep. Uh, the emergency cable rope it hangs about the counterweight hangs about uh, 15 feet off the ground in the bottom of the pit. It was at the stops. Like I said, it's a 70 foot pit. So there's some pictures on uh, in the, in the uh, app on, on your phone, the HUVA app, right? HUVA? Yeah. I posted some pictures. Uh, it's about the tram. You can see the tram car, and you can see the e-cables that are way below the tram car. Um, it was the second most stressful period of my career, and the Palmer wrecks were... The first, the first one. So, did it. If you guys got any questions, uh, there's a lot of articles in the news. Uh, if you look up Sandy Peak Tram New Year's Eve, um, you can. See there's a lot of there's hundreds of articles written about it. Not all factual, but uh, if you have any questions, feel free to come up and ask me about it. Um, that's about all I got. Thanks, Augie. Oh. Thanks, Augie. If you're ever in New Mexico too, you got to go ride that thing. It's incredible. 
It's uh, it's an amazing machine. It goes up to what, almost 12,000 feet? Uh, 10,300, okay. uh, just shy of 4,000 vert. 4,000 vertical, 15,000 feet long. Three miles long. It was the longest in the world at one yep. time, I think. Longest great, free Great stand. story that I have. My, my real connection with the Sandia Peak Tram is that when I was seven years old, I puked on a lady in a white mink coat. <laughs> and my mom still talks about that because she's like, she thinks how f funny it is that I became a lift guy. So, yeah, I've got some good connection with that tram. Um, okay, so we're going to talk just a little bit about kind of what's causing some of the ice. And I know I kn this is real fundamental stuff, rudimentary stuff. And unfortunately, my picture didn't turn out too good. I'm missing some of the lines. You won't be able to see them. But the normal, the normal northwest weather is pretty much just the jet stream will be coming from the west, as most of you know. In a normal, the beginning of a storm, we usually get southerly winds. And that will... Um, do a number of things coming up the Cascade, being that we're, we got a vertical or a, a, a north to south alignment of the Cascades with, with volcanoes in the middle of it. As our fronts move through, there's generally a cold front. You've got high pressure in here and low pressure out here generally. And as it moves through, the winds will then shift and, and become kind of more prominently from the west instead of the south or the southwest. And what that does is that usually backs up the storms a lot. And that's where you get the big dumps. That's where you get, you know, three, four feet overnight because you're getting a lot of lifting coming from the west side and you've got usually generally cold air coming from the east side. And there's a lot of low elevation ski areas in the northwest, especially places like Snoqualmie, Stevens Pass. One of the reasons they have a lot of snow is, well, first of all, they're a little bit, they're far enough north that it helps. And they've got the Cascade Crest blocking all the weather. But one of the other reasons is because cold air filters down from, from the Fraser River Canyon and from the Rockies. It comes through the Snake River Valley. And all that cold air, all that cold air is trying to move from high pressure to low pressure. And that's what wind usually goes from high to low. So most of that cold air is trying to get through these passages. And it's trying to get up into Stevens Pass or into Snoqualmie Pass. And that's actually what allows the snow to fall at lower elevations because you get a lot of cold air just over the east side of the crest. On the west side, it's wet and warm for the most part. And most ski areas that have been put up kind of on the west side of the Cascade Crest haven't worked very well. So that, that cold air coming from the east side is kind of what helps us, but it also hurts us um, because oftentimes that cold air will get trapped on the east side or in valleys and now it's a, it's a source um, that changes kind of what precipitation happens, uh, especially in the Columbia River Gorge. Um, the, the cold air can come you know, from all the way from up here, and it's trying to get through here because this is really the only big opening all through the Cascades. So it sucks a lot of wind, a lot of cold air, and what that cold air does is it just kind of seeps down the east side of the Cascades, especially in like the Hood River area or valleys, um, Yakima Valley. Wenatchee Valley. So you get a lot of that kind of strange weather. Um, and basically this is all it does is it is the west side air is pushing warm moist air up high. It can start out, you know, if it's cold everywhere, it's going to be snow. But if it starts out as rain up high, which a lot of times it does in the northwest, we get the, the wet storms as they come in with that southerly flow and it's real warm. Um, if you've had that cold passage of air coming in from the east side, though, it's going to mix with that, and it's going to either turn it into um, into snow briefly, 
but a lot of times it'll become freezing rain. And that will happen on the east side of the Cascades more, um, more likely um, than just about anywhere else. The, the, the Rockies really don't get this type of weather. So when you're seeing this, what, 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 uh, what I think is happening is this kind of weather that's been pretty normal on Mount Hood. Now, granted, there's other times we get freezing rain. There's other times where it's, where it's just warm and, it's, okay. and the freezing level has gone up everywhere to 6,000 feet and it's come in as snow up high. And as it gets down to the freezing level, it turns back to rain. And then maybe the steel is cold, refreezes on everything. So there's a number of different ways, but this is generally why a lot of the ice storms happen in the Northwest. They're happening down at lower elevations. Now, and this, I don't wanna get into a, a, a big conversation about global warming, but, but with, with the changes in our climate, this, ha this is now happening at different elevations. Snow levels that used to be real good in the Northwest at 4,000 feet, not so good some months. And that, but it's also changing to where sometimes now we get winter weather in April, much more than we used to. So it's changing. And I'm hearing that many more ski areas are getting this kind of condition where you're getting freezing rain, you're getting more rime than you maybe previously did. And it's affecting lift operations in a variety of ways. I'm gonna be doing a, a presentation down at Elmo talking about this as well, because California is getting the same weather condition that they never used to see except at places like Mammoth. And now it's becoming more, more and more common at other ski areas outside the Northwest. So um, that's part of the weather. You had some, Logan, you had some observations as well. I won't, I won't bore you guys too much with weather talk and it's all amateur theory on my part, but I'm seeing these low pressures come out it's general consensus that the jet stream is weakening. And when it weakens, it draws sort of a zonal flow coming across latitudes at 40 degrees to 50 degrees. It's dropping way down south and way back up north. It's, it's grabbing moisture in the tropics and bringing it way back up in the Gulf of Alaska. And it's doing it in a cadence where the Palmer storm we had and a few after that, since then, it's not just a localized event where we're drawing cold air from the east to west, it's bringing cold air. The cold air is coming down in the low already, but warm air is coming over the top of it and streaming in where we're getting inches and inches of precipitation, which is coming in freezing form. Um, it's a much bigger event than just a localized, the gorge or. Yeah, the, su the summer nor normal pattern is a lot more like what Logan's saying is more of a southerly flow. And so in the summertime, you get that you get that um, that jet stream that's coming kind of more down here. And that has definitely changed where we'll get huge high pressure sitting off of here. And it's and so the jet stream is going down to, to Hawaii and bringing it all back up. Sometimes it turns into huge rain events where you get four to six inches of rain in a day. I'm, I'm sure most everybody has seen that around here. And oftentimes it's really bad when it gets cold again. And that has a lot to do with um, the temperatures 
at the mountains as well. This is kind of showing, you know, the, a, a high elevation peak. But down where the ski areas are, oftentimes you'll have a fluctuation of, of weather in between that too. And a ski area with as much vertical as timberline, you go from what, 3,500 to 8,500, something like that. So you've got different levels of temperatures all the way up. And sometimes it could be quite a bit warmer or colder up, up usually you'd think going up the mountain, it's gonna get colder, but oftentimes it's actually the opposite to where the, the warm air could be trapped above. So much more of that type of, of situation happening than when I started, at least on Mount Hood. Yeah. Yep. No, and I think it's going to affect all of us in different ways, and um, to be aware of, and something to be thinking about when you're when you're laying out lifts, when you're thinking about machinery, are you going to get? Um, you know, whether or not you're going to get walkways, lifting frames, all the kind of things that used to be kind of, uh, maybe we don't need that. You really got to go in and think about that. Some of, the, some of your lists might need parking now or night drives, those kind of things. That it, previously, there was only a couple lists in the world that had night drives. There was the Cascade Lift, the Magic Mile, and the Palmer were like the only three in the United States that had night drives. And now people are actually thinking about putting those on a lot of different lifts. And that allows you to take the chairs off and keep the cable running so that you can keep things from freezing. Now, granted, like what Rose said, a lot of times, eventually you're going to get a fault for some kind. Usually you bypass your cable position sensors and you're running just on a brittle bar. But eventually, either the wind's going to blow the rope off because it's light and there's no chairs on and it's going to break a brittle bar, or you're going to freeze up machinery and break a brittle bar your machinery because it's the biggest bandsaw that you could possibly imagine. And that will happen. If you have machinery freeze up and the haul rope keeps going, it will saw all the way through all the axles, all the way through the shivs, all of that. So, um, so just wanted to point that out. So some good sites for you guys to know if you don't already have some good weather information. Um, I highly recommend, um, and, and, and this PowerPoint can be made available if you want to get it or just hit me up. But anybody that doesn't know about University of Washington and their atmospheric science department, if you're, if you're into weather at all, I highly recommend you check it out because anything weather related in the, United, in the Northwest is coming through University of Washington. And the guy, one of the most, uh, one of the best weather guys in the world, Cliff Mass, he puts out a blog. Highly recommend you, you read it if you're interested in weather at all. Um, a, just a wealth of knowledge. He puts out a lot of books. He does a lot of talks. Um, so really good information. This kind of stuff can help you predict the weather ahead of time and help you be ready for it. It's not going to stop it, but it will allow you to at least be ready for it with resources and manpower. So that, you're, so that you're not surprised. And that's, that's maybe the biggest improvement we've done for at least during my time, was that we at least knew it was coming. There's also NOAA has uh, lots of information. Um, these these uh, go directly to some of the models, not only for, um, for satellite pictures and the models for weather coming in, but also for wind and for temperature. And so many of, especially if you're on Mount Hood, 
Mount Bachelor doesn't always have a, a lot of information there, but Mount Hood North, great information. You can literally pinpoint the wind, direction, temperatures, all those kind of things. So I just thought I'd throw that out there because that's a big part of, of this is being prepared for it. So with this, there's a whole bunch of stuff that happens with de-icing. There's, and there's many different types of de-icing. There's de-icing where it's a fixed grip and it's been shut down all night and you got to go beat everything off. And then there's the detachable that has the night drive and that's a completely different monster. Um, oftentimes, um, but they can, they can kind of have the same kind of uh, challenges. This, this particular lift here is obviously it's got its grips on overnight. They went through, they de-iced the machinery, got the grips going, and now I think in reverse, they are de-icing chairs so the grips will go back in the terminal. Um, everybody's got a little different way of doing this. Some, some lifts are reversible and it's easy to do it in reverse. Pomas, not so much, at least the older school Pomas. So lots of different ways to do it. Now, one of the reasons I love this picture is because this person's getting after it, no doubt about it. But there's a lot of risk to this as well. And hopefully you understand some of what they are. Um, derailment issue, like what those guys in New Zealand face. Now, it's not, granted, it's not going to be the big whipping motion that they had and the big whipping motion that happened at Palmer. But you can you never know, especially if you're going backwards. Your alignment's maybe not as good going backwards as it is going forwards. So keep that in mind um, that you know when you're climbing around on machinery like this. The other thing is if he falls or she falls, whoever this is, they need to be rescued. Does everybody in here have a rescue plan for tower work? It, does show of hands? Anybody? Does anybody have a rescue plan? Okay, so most most of you do. For those of you that don't have a rescue plan, that is, as a manager or supervisor, that is one of the things you should be working on this summer. And if you need help, hit us, hit me up. We're more than happy to help, help you with that because you've got to have a way, and this is an OSHA requirement, and this is just a, a friend requirement to your coworkers, is you've got to have a way to go help each other out if you fall off. If you're using your equipment right and you're tied into your fall protection, on your back, and you have a, uh, a, a device that's gonna decelerate your fall. When you come to a stop, and they talked about hitting towers, we've had, we've had a couple people die in this industry from hitting towers, from falling out of work chairs, from falling off of towers. But when you, when you finally come to rest, you're gonna be in a situation that you now have your own emergency. The harness is not meant for you to just hang there for a while. Has anybody in here not, oh, show of hands of who has hung in their harness? Anybody hung in their harness? So about half. If you're, if you're a tower worker and you're working in work chairs, you've got to go home and hang in your harness and figure out how you're going to get out of it. So you need a way to suspend yourself off of your harness or else you're going to cut your femoral arteries off. And you've only got about 15 or 20 minutes to sit like that because you are going to be like this. Now, there are some people in the room that are really strong, really good rock climbers. I, I worked with a, a couple of people that could do this where they could hand over hand up their fall protection. Not this fat boy. I'm, uh, there is no way, not anymore. And so you've got to have a way to suspend yourself. 
That's the very least. From there, then you have to figure out how you're going to get somebody down that's hurt. So think about that. How do you do that? If you're not doing first aid and CPR rescue and carrying first aid kits with you in line in work chairs, you've got to start because you guys are the rescue crew for, for each other, okay? So some of the stuff to think about is, okay, first of uh, fall protection, tower climbing, how you anchor. Like I mentioned when we watched that video, the anchoring was not, not really the best level of protection there, having a loose anchor because he was in his positioning spot. That's supposed to stop you from falling. You don't want to induce any fall into that. You can really hurt your hips. The only place on most harnesses that you're going to have a fall protection is in your back, okay? So, so you go through your procedures and see, see how you're doing things, including tower climbing. When you have the ability to not use both lanyards, when you get up to the top of the tower, most of those lanyards are designed not to be tied all the time together and making a V. So usually, so go back and read your manual because most of those DBI Sala lanyards, only one of those hooks should be tied in if possible, okay? So just a few things to think about. Um, think about lockout tagout and how you're finding fail-safes, especially for what I'm gonna show you with, with cl cleaning the rope off. Um, and when you're doing that job, because that is one of the high, one of the most uh, kind of communication necessary uh, jobs that you're going to do, and you better make it really clear how you're doing that, how you secure the lift, how you're working on the lift, where you can be when you're working on the lift, those kind of things. Uh, other PPE to consider helmets. Um, and there's a bunch of other things you should, you know, eye protection, that kind of stuff. Safe zone, red zone. We're going to show a little bit of that. Um, what are your backup plans? Again, with rescue. Options for doing de-icing differently than this. Um, a lot of, lot of places now in New Zealand are installing a platform right here that allows this person not to have to do this. I mean, this is a sketchy. I don't know how many people have had to walk out on a on a cross arm like that. There's not a lot of them out there anymore. And that's a sketchy maneuver. Um, not, not much to hold on to. Not to mention whatever you tie into is gonna be at your waist or below it. So you're gonna fall further than you really want to. And then of course, rescue. Okay, we're gonna keep moving. So more than one way to get it done. This is, this is a way that Mount Bachelor used to do it. Um, I think you guys probably still do it like this. Um, and it was at the expense of maybe burning some shivs, but you get the you get you get in a work chair and you do it that way. Augie? Work chair without any carriers on it. Sketchy, very sketchy. Um, work chairs with no other chairs on changes the line changes the line load, and it's more of a thing than you may think, and especially yeah for like derailments, and 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 rope twist. But you can make a negative load on a, on a depression tower real easy with a work chair and people in it and no other chairs or an overloaded work chair. And that's a whole other subject that Mike Lane's going to be covering. But, but work chair loads is very important that you know the lift and know how many chairs are supposed to be on it and what it can handle because it will change the loads drastically. 
Anyway, this is one way to do it, is just one shiv at a time in a work chair. A lot of times they used to bring shivs with them um, and just change them as they go. And you get it done that way. Um, some other things as far as if, you're, if, you, if you have a detachable and you're having ice and you don't have brushes, this is the one way to kind of engineer out the dangerous part of the job and let a, a machine do it for you. Now, it's not going to do the entire job, but one of, one of the things you'll find in trying to jam frozen into a detachable terminal is you've got to have, you got to have speed and you got to have friction. And you gotta have, and it's gotta be as clean as possible. So what a lot of places will end up doing is you're working out on the on the front deck, and this is the front deck of a return terminal. Same kind of idea is uh, is another brush that's adjustable, and this helps again um, so that you don't have to get your hands in the machine and try and clean grips off as they're moving. So for those of you that have a detachable that are dealing with ice, this this can be a daily occurrence. Some lifts. And I know you're going to think I'm crazy, but some lifts with a really bad day can take upwards of 20 to 25 people to get going on Mount Hood. And that is usually people on towers, people on the, on the porches, de-icing grips, two or three people in the terminals, somebody in the lift shacks doing bypasses, a couple more, probably three people downstairs pushing chairs. So do the math and you end up with eight or nine or 10 people at each terminal trying to get a detachable going. And you've got a line of people waiting for you to open. So again, that kind of goes back to the planning ahead of time. Try to use your resources to be ready for the next day ahead of time. Um, again, we're guarding by space in this industry. Don't forget that. Um, figure out how you're gonna stop the lift wherever you are. Always have a backup plan for stopping the lift. Whether it's pulling a derail wire, pulling a comm line wire, um, the last picture showed uh, an east shutdown lanyard that's been run through the terminal and outside so that there's a rope stop right there. So at least you have a way to swing at that. But you always got to have a way to stop the lift somehow. You can't go, you can't just rely on your radio. Radios get walked on, radio batteries go dead. Um, people walk on each other, people from other departments come on, food and beverages looking for keg cups or whatever. So have a plan for that. The person running the lift has to be as knowledgeable about, as you are out on the lift de-icing it. They have to know what's going on. They got to know how to stop the lift. If they hear anything other than clear communication, they just got to stop the lift and, and secure it until you figure out what's going on. So talk about it, plan about it, train. Here's some pictures from way back at Timberline. This might've been after the second accident, maybe. When we had this happen, the lift's been on night drive and then it shut down. Now the rope is iced up. You gotta get this off. We used to do this on the move and we've subsequently come up with better ways of doing it, but it was the labor intensive method. And here's a person on, on one side and another on the other side. And on this particular one, you're standing out on the Poma Pass of a, of a probably a four-wheeler. And that four-wheeler, if you're on that Poma Pass, for those of you that don't know what the Poma Pass is, it's the thing that comes around underneath that you stand on underneath the assembly. If that derails, that Poma Pass will come up and around and hit you right here. 
And that's almost what happened to that guy in New Zealand, except that he had his hand up higher and the assembly came up and hit him up here. But those Poma passes on a four-wheeler will hit you head high, okay? So this is a pretty bad position. This is probably, this could be me or one of the people I work with. So this was a method we used for years. This was the only way we knew how to do it. it takes a lot of time and labor. Think about the safety of the whole crew and the morale. You're all in it together. You've got to go home together too, okay? So by the temperature when you're doing this, if the silver thaw, one camera strike will blow that. Exactly. Good point. So one of the things that changes de-icing how hard it is, we talked about that really hard ice on Palmer. Almost you can't, you can't do anything with it. You just hit it, hit it, hit it. It doesn't do anything. Temperature changes a couple degrees. Humidity changes it a little bit. All of a sudden, that same stuff is flying off. And it comes off like in chunks. And that's what causes some of these big releases that happen. So one, one of the backup easier ways of doing it, kind of like what Mike already showed or, and Rose showed in that last video where Mike was in the cat, same kind of idea. Um, this gets people off the tower. The rope's still supported on all the towers. You just got to get it off of the tower so you can run it. So instead of having people up here de-icing it a little bit at a time, you use a rope toe rope and a shackle and you start pulling it and you strip the line. So a much easier way to get it done, a lot safer. Um, and um, anyway, it's, it's a way better way of doing this than having people on the towers. Yep. So uh, there is times where maintenance de-icing does happen with lifts running. Trying to keep the night drive going. You got to do it safely. Um, staying behind those handrails again and having yourself harnessed so you can't get to the machinery is sometimes the only guarding you have is your lanyard keeping you from walking into the machinery. This is a picture of Palma the first time at Palmer, the first time it fell over. So this is what can happen. They didn't have any pictures of this the first time. But this is what it looks like. This is where the tower is crumpled. And this was, that, was from, that was from ice and wind. I think we're done, right? Yeah. Yeah. What? It's time to drink beer? Yeah. I got to give a big shout out back to Rose Phillips, GM at Timberline, her crew, Mike Fair and Sean Kieran in lift maintenance, Logan Stewart, Timberline's mountain manager, Tom Scully there from Safehold Special Risk, and Augie Eichen down there at the Sandia Peak Tramway. Such a cool thing to have all of these people come together in the room, share their knowledge with the workforce of the ski industry in the Northwest, and really just help promote a safe culture uh, and just a fun lifestyle. So thanks so much to everybody that was involved in that. At the 2022 Mountain Works Conference, we recorded several other sessions, which can be found right here 
on the Mountain Works podcast. Make sure you subscribe so the next episode pops up on your feed. Leave us some reviews and we'll see you next time when we talk about how the mountain works. in archives i was lucky i found these um, but we're gonna legacy box them so we have them digitally now all right i'm ready i'm goggy foggles <laughs>